0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network, of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. After a summer-long series of podcasts about the Nazi concentration camps, we're turning our attention to a very different subject today. Uh, the subject you might characterize to steal and modify a, a phrase that I think was coined by Catherine Fadieri, the afterlives of dead bodies. Talking about this with me today is Adam Rosenblatt, the author of a splendid new book titled Digging for the Disappeared, Forensic Science After Atrocity. Adam's book is partly an account of the emergence of the field of forensic science as used in the aftermath of mass violence, but it is also a thoughtful examination of the ethics and politics of these investigations, one that recognizes how difficult it is to respect the needs and beliefs of those invested in these bodies. It's a topic we haven't explored before on the show, and so I'm really thrilled that Adam is here to talk about it with us. So, Adam, welcome to the show, and
1: thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly, and I appreciate that kind introduction. So,
0: so the book is a,
1: a thoughtful,
0: careful examination of the field, but, but it starts out with a very personal reflection on your experience of losing your grandfather and your grandmother. Why start the book
1: that way? Um, You know, I was actually challenged to do that um, by a wonderful uh, old uh, professor of mine, I should say former professor of mine, (laughs) Um, because she's not old, but uh, a a professor I had as an undergraduate um, at Yale, who had actually left the tenure track at Yale, but was still teaching in the summers. Uh, She's now a a wonderful writer. Her name is uh, Patricia Kleinbeinst. and uh, she and I reconnected at one point when I was in graduate school and she passed through uh, California. Um, and she sort of knew me well um, and heard my description of the book that I was writing. Um, and as somebody who's very interested in, in family history and uh, kind of intergenerational legacies of things like immigration um, and political uh persecution herself she said yeah but this has something the fact that you're writing this book has something to do with your family history right uh and I was very much in in grad school mode uh you know intellectualizing everything (laughs) you know very very afraid of the I voice I guess you might say Mm -hmm. and so I sort of resisted and I said you know I put up some some boundaries. I said, well, it's not really a book about the Holocaust. It doesn't focus only on the Holocaust, et cetera. And she and my wife, both over dinner and a bottle of wine, just said, um, people are going to want to know um, w- w- how you how you came to write a book about, you know, about dead bodies, about atrocity, what fueled you. Um, and so I... Sat down and, and more in a journal and not so much in the document that was my dissertation. I I tried to write about it and then that became the preface.
0: So so what is the answer to their question? How did you come to write about this? Um. So I do think
1: uh, that. Um. I I think that my um, initial interest in human rights and the legacy of atrocity, um, you know, really blossomed when I studied abroad in Chile, uh, as a graduate, <laughs> um, and when I was there, uh, the, the program that I was doing, uh, which was through the School for International Training, actually allowed you to spend the final month pursuing a research project of your, of your own, um, <laughs> So um, I wound up uh, meeting some people who um, had been involved in, in um, taking the land that was the Via Grimaldi, which was um, the worst, uh, most brutal uh, concentration camp in Chile, right in this residential, kind of leafy residential neighborhood um, in Santiago. Um, and, and these people had banded together um, and prevented that land um, at the end of the dictatorship, from being um, sort of sold and made into you know a condo owned by somebody who had connections to the regime um, and instead had fought it was really you know they had lived with this concentration camp in their in their midst and they lived under terrible terror um, throughout the whole dictatorship um, but this was sort of the last straw for them when they when they thought that the um, that even the site itself was going to be erased, um, and they made it into what is now um, a thriving and beautiful memorial uh, <laughs> in Santiago, which is called the Parque por la Paz or um, Park for Peace. Um, so, um, in any case, I wound up um, becoming very interested not just in the fact that um, the community had banded had banded together in that way um, to save this site for memory. But then in some of the amazing challenges that popped up, um, sort of, yeah, you had this moment where there was agreement, this should be a memorial. And then, of course, you have to figure out what that memorial is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I got to do an interview with an artist who's um, who had submitted a design for the wall of names that you usually have nowadays, you know, mm-hmm. in the post uh, In Vietnam War Memorial era. Um, it's become sort of a a trope of the memorial, right, is the is the wall of the names, yeah. and um, this uh, German-born artist had uh, had put together a design that would actually have the names be sort of almost legible but not quite hmm. in front, and then around the back there would be slips of paper um, th- where the family could write the names and keep them there, but unless they kept going and putting up new pieces of paper. You know, gradually the elements would um, would destroy those aspects of the memory. So what he was trying to say is sort of um, there's some sense of the memory, uh, of the numbers and of the sort of fact of what's happened that is permanent. But the actual memory of the people and all their intimate reality, you know, it fades once loved ones aren't there to tend to that memory. Uh, I found it um, to be a beautiful does, Design a beautiful concept, but um, for family members who had lived through um, a decades-long dictatorship in which the fact of their loved one having been disappeared had been denied, um, that sort of um, open acknowledgement of impermanence, um, that sort of partial memory was just not it was not what they wanted. They wanted. Um, after so long waiting and after so much denial to see their loved ones names carved into stone uh, yeah. so this was for me you know as an undergraduate just a very early glimpse into what has always been my fascination ever since in studying human rights and studying memory which is um the uh, the tragedy of competing goods right um there's I'm I tend to be much less interested, although I think there's an amazing work on the question of evil or the question of, uh, you know, why people do wrong. I tend in my own work to be very interested in where, uh, multiple priorities and multiple goods, um, come into conflict with one another. Um, so <laughs> I, I think I've, I've gone a little roundabout here, but, but um, <laughs> that experience of, um, of doing that research in Chile, um, you know, really cemented my intellectual interest in in human rights, in um, post-conflict studies. Um, but now that I've reflected on it more personally, of course the groundwork for that um, is uh, having my own family history of um, people who I didn't think of as disappeared. Um, actually, while I was in Chile studying... That experience that was very foreign to my own history, but um, as I say in the preface of the book, once I began to reflect on uh, the fact that in my own family we have we have a generation uh, on my dad's side where um, there are two, I guess there are three people. Um, my Dad's father, his stepfather, and my dad's mother, who we were able to bury, um, and, uh, you know, can go visit the graves, put flowers on them, and then the rest of that entire generation and the generations that went before, um, I have no idea and will never have any idea where the dead lie. Um, and they're, you know, they're gone, they're in some ways unmournable, they're disappeared, um. So that connection is absolutely there.
0: So You're not a forensic scientist. How much science did
1: you have to learn to do this book? Um, So I was very fortunate um, to really fall almost accidentally into this job um, at Physicians for Human Rights uh, in between uh, Undergraduate, I, I had many years of of working in different nonprofit organizations in between undergrad and and then wanting to go back to grad school, um, and it, I always I always tell my students this story um, to re, just to give them a sense of how nonlinear linear um, career paths may be when they get a little too stuck on sort of I'm do this and I'm going to do that. Um, I applied for a completely different job at Physicians for Human Rights, um, which. I think I was being optimistic uh I didn't have the background for her. they wanted a public health background. I was still relatively fresh out of undergrad um, but and here comes my defense of the liberal arts uh you know they, <laughs> they saw something in my you know capacity to um, conduct research, the fact that I'd been abroad that i'd you know tried to do interesting things with the opportunities in front of me um and, and, in my interest in writing and things like that, 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 um, they thought would be useful and, and they had needs in their forensic program at the time, uh, Bill Hagland, who was the head of the international forensic program at physicians for human rights, forensic anthropologist was in Iraq. Um, uh, the, uh, invasion had just been a few months before, um, Iraq was still a very dangerous place. Um, and but um, he was beginning to try to look into what was going to happen with the graves, who were going to be the stakeholders, um, what graves had been located, which ones hadn't, um, what were the religious beliefs that were going to play into uh, the dialogue around exhumations, etc. So I basically just got thrown into. I mean, I, I literally, I hadn't even watched CSI before. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, forensic science background. I was not um, a science major of any kind. I was a literature major. Um, so in this sort of, I'll, I'll be forever grateful to Physicians for Human Rights, I got thrown in, thrown in um, handed a bunch of books. Um, and so I did, because I did things once I was there, like help edit a curriculum, uh, an online course on uh, forensic anthropology and, on, and forensic science in the human rights context. I did learn a fair bit about the basics, um, but as I was writing the book, um, you know, even though the focus of it is politics and ethics more than the entropies of, intricacies of the science, it's of course extremely important to get the science right, and the science impacts um, the politics and the ethics. So, um, you know, I've done some reading myself and, you know, trying to piece together um, understandings for myself by following the field. But I'm, I'm just lucky that over time, I also have built up um, a network of contexts who do practice the, the anthropology and do practice the science. Um, and I've reached out to them when, when I needed help. Let's, let's
0: start talking about the book with some kind of basic questions. And so what, what's the right name to use for this field we're talking about? Is it forensic science, forensic anthropology? Is it?
1: Uh, it's, it's a great question and it's one that I struggled with as I was writing the book. Um, mm-hmm. So forensic anthropology is not the right name, at least for what I was um, writing about, because forensic anthropologists are an exceedingly important but not the only um, uh, field, group of professionals who, who uh, are not only involved but often necessary. Um, so, you know, uh, if you have flesh remains uh, that need to be autopsied, that's usually the work of forensic pathologists. Um, there are uh there are i, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds here but there are um countries where forensic archaeology uh is the more prominent field countries where where what's traditionally considered forensic archaeology is actually part of a broader field of forensic anthropology and places where those two things intersect and places where they're distinct um so I turned to the term forensic investigation, and more specifically, in most cases, I called it international forensic investigation mm-hmm. um, because, as a as as a somebody as a scholar of politics, you know, the driving um, thing that kind, of, that kind of distinguished it for me was the fact that this is these are examinations that have been conducted. Um, with a tremendous amount of of international or transnational um, expertise, starting in Argentina with um, the delegation from the American Academy for the Advancement of Sciences and, of course, most famously, the forensic anthropologist Clyde Snow, who trained uh, Argentines to to do exhumation and then ultimately was involved in um, the creation of teams all over Latin America but so as you know, so it's transnational, starting with Argentina, and then of course, absolutely, sort of even more so as you move into the '90s. We have the genocides in uh, Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, um, and, and multiple projects since. Um, there's also an argument for calling it human rights forensic science or human rights forensic investigation. Um, even there, you do get into um, uh areas where that may not be 100 accurate in the sense that the um the intersection of human rights and humanitarianism you know how you distinguish those two things and uh um whether you have what sort of commitments you have to keeping them distinct or showing their relationships you know makes the terminology a nightmare because the same methods uh that have been so powerful in, let's say, uh, exhuming and identifying um, uh, victims in Bosnia, have been equal, equally powerful and important um, after Hurricane Katrina, the um, East Indian Ocean tsunami, etc. Um, and the field itself is is really um, very much made up of... Uh, both humanitarian and human rights projects. So you just, you know, I guess, long story short, um, in the interest of avoiding having to write out humanitarian and human rights applications of forensic science, every time I spoke about the field, um, I mostly spoke of forensic investigation or international forensic investigation.
0: So you mentioned some of the transnational institutions and people. what, What kind of training... Do you get for this? What? Who? Who does this? Do you make a career out of it, or do you do it on sabbatical, or how does this all work?
1: I think that things are changing all the time in the field. Um, there, there are, from what I understand, um, far fewer full-time positions um, for somebody with an expertise in forensic anthropology. Uh, or forensic pathology, uh, forensic archaeology, there aren't, um, there aren't a terribly large number of, uh, funded full-time positions for somebody to dedicate all their time to human rights. Uh, so the model still is, and certainly has been, um, that many of these organizations have a very small permanent staff, um, that, uh, you know, uh, has the expertise, um, chooses the missions, uh, interacts with a board of directors, executive director, et cetera, um, and then there are people who are brought in to work on particular projects because of their expertise and availability, et cetera. Um, so, for example, a physician, well for physicians for human rights, is very experienced at maintaining networks of uh, professionals to 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 help with all the different areas where they work. They've long had um, a uh, a network of physicians who um, uh, will help them uh, investigate asylum cases. You know, work with work with people who are applying for asylum uh, to document their. Uh, their injuries, their trauma, et cetera, to evaluate them. Um, so, so forensic scientists would be, are, are another sort of, uh, forensic scientists who can specifically help with exhumation, um, autopsy, identification, et cetera, would be another network they tap into. Um, in the case of, of Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia and the nineties, um, there were people who came in on quote unquote vacation um, from you know day day to day jobs um, in in morgues or in police departments um, and that wound up with its own politics in terms of the um, going from the police context to the international human rights context and um, I think some conflicts about identity when you when you look at um for example, the, the people who make up the Argentine forensic anthropology team, um, who were sort of to oversimplify or sort of were sort of human rights people first, um, who then came into anth- forensic anthropology because of their commitment to working on these issues, because they'd been impacted directly or had witnessed what was going on in their own country, um, and because they sort felt a certain closeness to family members, um, and, and, uh, to the grief and, and the needs there. Um, so, so you get folks like that and then you get folks whose primary identity, and I write about this a little bit in the book, um, is as the scientist or the expert who brings a toolkit of skills that they can happen to apply, um, to human rights, um, which isn't to say that those professionals haven't also done, um, wonderful things. Uh, but when you're on the ground and you're navigating things like um, how closely should we, how much should we voice or how closely should we identify with um, the families of the missing, uh, you get very different philosophies between the person who is sort of an activist who has learned to use scientific tools versus the scientist who is applying his or her tools to an activist slash human rights Huh. Well, let's start to think about some of those political complexities, um, and and let's start with Argentina. And and I think you suggest in the book that this field really kind of
0: emerged in Argentina in the course of an aftermath, and and in the aftermath of the Dirty War. Can, how, how does how does forensic science how, does, how, how how does forensic science become an important player in what happens in Argentina?
1: Um, so I think it, it emerges largely from, um, a, a wonderful, a fortuitous intersection of a bunch of, um, very savvy, very, um, committed individuals. Um, so you had, as, as I recount in the book, you had a group called the Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo or, um, in English, they're often called the grandmothers of the disappeared, um, who knew they needed scientific expertise um, for a number of reasons. One was that these were um, women who were largely searching for grandchildren um, who had been taken um, taken from their children at the camp. So uh, the Argentine regime. Uh, as listeners may or may not know, uh, was sort of infamous for kidnapping pregnant women, uh, or sometimes kidnapping young children along with their parents, um, and then disappearing, eliminating the parents um, uh, if, if they already had a child, or sometimes have keeping the pregnant women in camps so they could give birth there, and then killing them, um, and then they would distribute these children, uh, you know, to couples who had some connection to the regime. Uh, there was sort of a quiet, I guess, black market really in, um, in the babies of the disappeared. Um, so it's of course really quite sick. Um, and it is actually the crime that later on led to some of the avenues that lawyers were able to take around the amnesty laws, the, um, that the regime had sort of written for itself. Um, but uh, to get back to the, the abuelas, the grandmothers, um, they had cases where they suspected that a child who was living with a particular family was actually um, w- was actually stolen from uh, you know a disappeared person, and these children were growing up um, with often with no idea of their real parentage, um, with the fiction that they that the family they were living with was their biological family or that they had been adopted through, uh, you know, more, more familiar means. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wanted to be able to, to, to test um, whether, whether these children were, uh, were who their parents said they were. Um, but because the generation, because their parents were gone, they needed a, um, a a grand paternity test, um, so they found out about experts in the U.S. Um, who were who were working on this, um, and arranged during a visit to the U.S. to meet with the American Academy for the Advancement of Sciences, um, and uh, and they also were very concerned about the state of what was happening with the graves um, in in Argentina because the uh, initial attempts to kind of locate uh, and exhume disappeared people from graves where they were suspected to have been buried um, were basically, uh, they were being uh, kind of farmed out to cemetery personnel and, uh, you know, uh, grave diggers, et cetera, who had none of the, necessary expertise to do it the right way and in fact evidence was being destroyed um, so I mean this is, a, this is a huge hazard that comes up over and over um, in, in the field of kind of forensic science is that well intentioned um, well-intentioned attempts to find the dead um, can at least in scientific terms do more harm than good um, of course, then you have to look at what are all the different kinds of harm and good. I say in scientific terms because sometimes, uh, you know, families may just be so desperate to find who they believe to be their loved one or to take a grave that's been created in ways that they find blasphemous and um, alter it and reconsecrate it that then there are other sort of non scientific priorities those families are are working towards that may have to be balanced with the scientific ones. Um, But but back to the case of Argentina, really it was that visit of the grandmothers um, to the American Academy for the Advancement of Science um, and uh, the quick response by a number of people whose names I can't uh, can't list uh, all right now. But um, the person whose name I think really has to be mentioned here is Eric Stover. Uh, the wonderful current director of the um, Human Rights Center in, in Berkeley uh, at, uh, you know, at the University of California, Berkeley, um, who helped to put, put together a delegation that included Clyde Snow um, and bring a number of wonderful scientists, some of whom already had a connection to Argentina and some who didn't, uh, down there uh, to address the issue of graves and to work on the question of grand paternity. Um, and it was that that kind of moment when the human rights needs and the human rights community kind of interlocked with an engaged scientific community, um, and and the field was sort of born. Uh, just as a quick footnote, you know, I discuss in the book, and it's worth mentioning that there were wo- that there was um, at least you know one set of previous major international yeah. efforts in forensic science, uh, you know, undertaken by, by the Nazis. Um, uh, and I think the reason I'm hesitant, the reason I, I, am qualified in terms of whether I consider that, uh, you know, the beginning of the field or whatever, um, is precisely because it doesn't actually really feature the interlocking of, um, human rights purposes, Human rights activism, families of the missing, with science—it's um, a—it was an inv- investigation that had um, had outputs that mattered in terms of how we understand his, the history of conflict. But there was there was no seat at the table for anyone who really cared about human rights in and of themselves.
0: And, and one of the points you make in your chapter about Argentina is, is precisely that. There's this international response to the need, and people arrive in Argentina and, and quite quickly realize that there's competing priorities and competing desires for, and competing agendas, maybe, not meaning that in a, in a cynical way, but um, for what should happen with these dead bodies. Can you kind of lay out the, the positions
1: and, and what, how the politics of these dead bodies played out in Argentina? Um, sure, so I, I can give a sketch, um, and, uh, it's, it's, of course, too complicated to more to right. than a sketch, in part because, um, uh, there's, there's wonderful work by scholars such as, uh, the anthropologist Tony Robin that points out that, um, basically the dead bodies in Argentina have always been complicated, um. And so, uh, politically complicated, um, and so I'm always cautious about, um, marking off a particular time period as sort of, oh, there was a conflict, and then, uh, you know, and then there were political agendas attached to dead bodies, and, um, making that a discrete thing, when I, I guess what I mean to say is that every context and every culture also has its day-to-day, uh, usually very complex relationship, um. Uh, with the dead. Um, and I'll just say as a side note there, I'm in the middle of reading, uh, Drew Gilpin Faust's, you know, with a group of students and, um, and and that's a wonderful book to, uh, to read if you want to reach back to the civil war and see how many of our own complicated relationships with the dead and even some of the ways we deal with our, uh, urban spaces and things like that, you know, reach back to a terrible conflict in our history. Um but back to argentina, i think um th- there's this moment that I write about uh where the argentine team they actually aren't at that point yet officially the argentine team uh, of uh the the, um, the they aren't yet the official forensic anthropology team that they will become you know as an independent organization um but they're um they're at the cemetery and they've come to um exhume uh, a couple graves where they have some idea of of who's in there, but they don't know exactly who's buried where um, and they are accompanied as as usual um or or as they were now accustomed to by uh some glaring police officers who are there, you know, just to make sure they know uh, that the local authorities aren't so into this project and that, you know, if the tables should turn again, people know what their faces look like, right? Um, And and they may be on the next list of the disappeared if this (laughs) this whole democracy thing doesn't doesn't last. Um, So it's already a tense atmosphere. Um, And then to the shock of the you know, these young student anthropologists um, and human rights activists who are there, um, some representatives of the um, the Madres de Plaza de Miles, to the, not the grandmothers of the Disappeared, who I mentioned before, but the mothers of the Disappeared, um, the famous activist group uh, that, you know, marched around uh, the main public square in Buenos Aires with pictures of their loved ones and that really brought um, disappearance in Argentina to international attention, they um, start screaming at these students and um, you know, throwing stones and saying, you know, get out of here. Um, and there's a complex story there over whether um, one of the family members of one of the bodies that was believed to be uh, to be buried there, um, felt that she had or hadn't given approval to the team to do this, uh, to, to start this exhumation. Um, and I should say that the Argentine team, as a matter of policy, you know, won't conduct an exhumation that the family really doesn't want. But I think it hadn't really occurred to anybody um, that the people who are most sort of the object of um, the the form of repair that they're trying to, to do. The people who are most supposed to benefit from um, this effort to exhume the graves and identify the bodies would just object, but a of, of screaming uh, stones. Um, and uh, basically uh, the Madres had arrived at, um, an analysis of the political situation in the country in which they felt that exhumations were, um, an attempt to, uh, to kind of declare all the disappeared dead, uh, you know, brush off your hand, brush off your hands and move on, um, they were an attempt by the new, you know, the new democratic government to, uh, you know, ease tensions with the still very powerful military um, and, you know, consolidate their fragile hold on governments by not really dealing um, with. with. Um, and they had a lot of reason, based on the experiences they'd had previously, uh, to, to feel that way. Um, so there had been under the junta, under the, you know, the, the right wing military regime, there had been an attempt to just issue a sort of a legal order that, uh, you know, legal declaration that all the disappeared people were dead, uh, case closed. Hmm. Um, so, so there's a history there that helped make that, um, that sense of a false closure being imposed on them, um, Uh, Understandable and very vivid. Um, So, the decision of many of the mothers uh, in this group was: we are going to refuse uh, not just, I should say, not just exhumation, but exhumation memorials and reparations. Um, They saw those as the three kind of techniques of imposed closure. uh, now, there were other um, mothers in, and activists in the group who, who deeply disagreed, and the grandmothers, of course, disple- disagreed too. So exhumation ultimately became, I don't want to say the cause of the organization splitting apart, because that um, it, that oversimplifies sort of other tensions that were already there under the surface. Tensions around class, around political positioning. Um, so, you know, to, to oversimplify somewhat, there was sort of a hard left within the group, and then a uh, a, a human rights focused, but not uh, as um, not as sort of politically uh, doctrinaire group uh, within this community. But became the, the, the decision over whether or not to oppose exhumations became a, kind of a crack that helped tear these two sides apart um, and ultimately divide the organization into two separate uh, organizations. Um, and I go I, you know I spend a whole chapter actually trying to analyze. Uh, I, I hope both generously and with some critical distance, this fundamental claim that the exhumations were going to be a form of false closure. Um, because I think that a, it's an extremely important claim to understand it was nuanced. Um, uh, as I said, it had a sort of historical precedent to fuel it. And I think in general that, um, Uh, and I'm not the only person I've I've been in dialogue with other scholars who, who want to carry this work forward with me, but I think in general family members reasons for objecting to, uh, the exhumation of their dead or, or even for hesitating about it is sort of understudied. Um, so, uh, the mothers of the disappeared had already, already been called the regime, you know, a bunch of locas, a bunch of crazy women. Um, for going around and crying and walking in circles uh, in the Plaza de Mayo, and you know, sadly, some of the initial um, uh, some of the initial response on the part of the scientific community and also the mainstream political community in Argentina when they began to oppose exhumations there was similarly without really thinking about their claims or about what counter-arguments might be offered to just say, oh, they were crazy, they're still crazy, or, you know, they're a radical French. Um, so I think that um, their their had, their objections to exhumation really deserved a fair cataloging and analysis. I also, so once I really started delving into it, um, I thought that there were... Um, distinctions that they had made poorly, I thought that the logic in places didn't hold up. Um, and I found that the body of scholarship since then, um, often there was a certain enchantment, um, a certain postmodern humanities enchantment with what the what the Madres de Plaza de had done in refusing exhumation. And there was all this stuff about the holes of memory, the gaps that they had kept open, and how they had rendered the desaparecidos a liminal category. Um, and every time I looked at this, there would be some some lines to the effect of they had chosen you know, um, to keep memory alive, even if unresolved, instead of mm-hmm. forgetting. Or they had chosen you know, to, to preserve the past as a radical break rather than reform and forgiveness. Um, now, something happens whenever there's a rather than in that sentence because there's an actual group of people on the other side of that rather than who wanted, the fan, wanted their dead ones exhumed. Um, and I felt like other scholars were um, granted in a subtle way but not an unimportant one we're saying basically that these other mothers and these other um, grandmothers and family members who wanted to bury their dead, who wanted to know exactly whether the body was the right one, um, you know, who wanted a tomb or a memorial, um, were agents of conciliation, uh, agents of forgetting. In some cases, people even use the term re disappearance. Um, and I thought that was wrong. Um, I thought it was a, a, a misunderstanding of the radical potential and of the um, the way uh, the radical potential of exhumation and the ways in which it um, had kept the disappearance alive in the memory of the country and had kept a dialogue going about um, amnesty, memory, accountability. Um, and I also, I guess, frankly, I, I thought it was cruel. Um, I, I don't think there's a single best way to grieve, um, and I don't think that these other activists, mostly women, deserved to be sort of um, mentioned in an afterthought and only as sort of, like I said, as sort of agents of capitulation or agents of forgetting. I thought that was a horrible distortion, so um, I wanted to write about that as well.
0: So that, that that's one kind of stake that people have in this this Made about what to do. What are some of the other objections that other uh, people involved in other atrocities have have raised to exhuming and, and, and examining graves?
1: Um. So there, um, as I sort of, so I, I go from a chapter on objections to exhumation in Argentina to. Mm-hmm a chapter that mentions Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, dwells on Mm Diodwodne, Poland. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the other sort of broadest category in which um, objections or sometimes even just requests for further negotiation Mm. tend to be framed um, is culture and religion. Um, So in the case of Diodwodne, these were... um, the bodies of the Jews from, a you know, a small Polish town who had been rounded up. Um, m- most of them, those who weren't beaten to death, uh, the larger numbers were forced into a barn that was burned down to the ground, um, and then they were buried in mass graves. Um, and when, you know, fast forward uh, many years ahead to the early 2000s, um, a whole, uh Sort of, what would you call it? A kind of reexamination that's going on in Poland ra- right now. And I know, as somebody who, um, who who studies the Holocaust, Kelly, you may be uh, you know more expert on, on on the situation in Poland than I am. But uh, th- you know, this real national conversation opens up in Poland about about the Holocaust and the National Institute of Remembrance. Um, Decides to to organize an exhumation there um, in Yevadne to get some answers, largely uh, about responsibility. So, was it um, as the Princeton scholar Jan Gross claims? Uh, was this really the sort of the Polish neighbors who, um, with the excuse of Nazi occupation, you know, turned on the Jews in their midst, or was this, as his other historians, think very much a Nazi project? project. Um, but long story short, you get these uh, sort of um, – you get these, these well-meaning Polish anthropologists who are uh, trying to open up a project of historical memory and human rights. You get uh, my boss, Bill Haglund, there um, as, as an observer, um, called in by the, uh, by the Institute for National Remembrance, and then soon after you get these rabbis and their congregants who come out from Warsaw and elsewhere and say you can't do this. Um, you can't disturb the dead in these ways It's against Jewish law, it's against the Talmud. Uh, mm-hmm. Or I may be wrong about which body of, uh, of law. <laughs> I'm not going to go down that road wrong. <laughs> it's terrible uh, what is, how, how little knowledge of my own heritage I, I have in certain areas. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, in any case, um, you, you get uh, you get religious figures um, with a community behind them, um, you know, running smack dab into the scientific project and speaking in a language that I don't think science knows how to address. Right? See this in the newspaper. Played out in the newspaper all the time you know, various issues around stem cells or the teaching of evolution, et cetera, and, you know, in a language where it's hard to even create a conversation between the two sides. They say, you know, these these graves are sacred. This would be a desecration. Um, and Hidvabe is not the only place where that, where that happened, but it became kind of my case study. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one of, I, I would say the, the, if I had to make categories, I'd say there's the category that focuses on the political, um, and, uh, ha you know, where the, the community of mourners or the community of survivors has real doubts about the purposes of the state in exhuming their dead. Uh, and I've just been learning from another colleague about some very, a very interesting situation in Canada with, uh, the bodies of children who were, you know, forcibly sent to, to schools for the indigenous there, oh, where there's also a lot of skepticism about new, new forensic efforts and, and whose purposes they serve. Um, so, so, you know, either skepticism about the state or even about the international community. In the former Yugoslavia, there was a lot of skepticism about, you know, what, what were the purposes that the international community had? Were they just trying to go in, grab a few representative you know, zoom a few representative graves for trials and get out um, uh, to make a big legal show uh, and and not have to engage with other responsibilities. Um, And then you get the the claims that are not, uh, the objections that are not framed in such political terms that are framed in the terms of the sacred, of religion, of culture. Um, And I don't think... um, I came up with sort of answers, or forensic teams should do this, forensic teams should do that. Um, But I will say that as I've gone back and reflected on that issue and on those chapters, I think to the extent I was able to make a contribution, it was um, to show that embedded often within what looks like political claims is some sense of the sacred. Um, uh, So the debate between the two groups of, of um, the mothers that disappeared was very much about sort of um, what was the best stance to take with regards to the transitional government, etc. But there was also something about how do we identify our dead as a category? Mm-hmm. Um, and what is sacred here? And so to the Refused examination, and who have this radical stance of you know let them appear alive, and until you can, until somebody tells us every single crime that occurred and can bring us back are you know are disappeared alive, which in many cases they knew to be impossible. Um, so even there, you have a certain element of sacredness, right? Like the 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 u- using something that can't really happen um, as a as a way of forcing the state to engage with something that it can't that it can't really answer, right? Um, But also, really, they were invested in um, identifying all those who had disappeared as a sacred category of martyrs, who had had died for a common political project of transformation. Um, And and really, the way to remember them was to treat their project as sacred, um, to anoint a new group of young activists, uh, their successors, um, and to plow ahead with this sort of this legacy of, of the fallen um, fueling you. And then, of course, on the other side, there, were, um, there was still some attachment to the body itself of the dead as, as the sacred thing that you care for. Um, so, so back to my little, <laughs> my little schema, which may now be getting lost, within, <laughs> within the thing that looks like it's a political objection, you can find logics of the sacred, and then, uh, you know, without going into too much detail, um, I found in the case of Yidfavne, um Democratic Republic of Congo, and other places um, that it, there isn't just this simple process by which uh, a priest who, a priest, or rabbi, or imam who speaks for all of the mourners comes out and says, "This is the this is the sacred law," um, and it's a quote-unquote, purely religious um, objection. In fact, there were a lot of background conditions. The rabbis in Yudvadne were coming into Yudvadne from Warsaw, from Israel, from London, um, and may have had their own concerns regarding um, new inroads that were being made um, between the Jewish community uh, and sort of mainstream Christian society, of Poland, you know, projects of reconciliation. Um, and they, there also, it wasn't as figuring out who they represented, um, you know, whether they could speak for all Jews, for the entire Jewish diaspora, or whether they spoke for a particular group of, um, you know, Polish kind of reborn Jews who had a, um, a particular take on religion and a particular set of purposes, you know, all that became quite complex the more I looked into it. Um, so the sacred claims turned out to have a lot of politics in them. Hmm.
0: So, so you've talked about a bunch of different stakeholders so far, and you, in fact, identify others in the book that we don't have time to talk about. But, but one of the, the, the questions you asked suggested that a, a kind of stakeholder that hadn't occurred to me... You phrase it by asking, do dead bodies have human
1: rights? What what's your answer to that question? Uh, okay, so um I had I did so much work, Kelly, to avoid uh having to ask the <laughs> philosophical questions I raised. here you are asking me point blank. Um You know, I started that so yeah. Um, if there are parts of my own intellectual journey and how I changed over the years of working on this book that are that are evident, um, you know, within the book, uh, and even when uh, you know, in the off chance somebody looks at other things I published beforehand, um, it's this: uh, the, the the changes I made in the chapter on do the dead human, have human rights um, really reflect. Um, a journey from um, early graduate school. And so let me back up for a second. The first part of this book I ever wrote was the chapter on do the dead have human rights. And then eventually that was published in human rights quarterly um, as something like international forensic investigation and the rights of the dead. Um,
0: And I was in a lot
1: of political philosophy courses I was attending um, a wonderful workshop um, on global justice, another workshop on political theory. Um, And so I was with, um, particularly at Stanford where I was studying, I was with um, a lot of people who were very invested in um, normative philosophy, analytic philosophy that comes out with propositions like, you know, the dead have human rights and therefore X, Y, Z, or – Justice is fairness and Rawls can prove that via this or that um, thing. And I, I have I still um you know have many colleagues who do that kind of work. I, I very much respect it. I think that I it, I I I wound up ending that particular article um with um a statement that to some degree, especially because with the dead, unlike any other community, you can't consult them on their. You, you can't have some sort of grassroots movement that articulates its own rights claims. Um, because you don't have that, in some ways, um, all you have when you're trying to work out whether the dead have rights or not is the, is the all-important follow-up question. Well, what would this mean? Um, And I became a much more of a pragmatist, Um, (laughs) and I think um, the influence that anthropology over me that normative philosophy kind of ebbed a little bit. So, you know the the version of, the chapter that addresses this question in the book is much different than the article I originally published, um, <laughs> because it jettisons a lot of the sort of, um, well, would the rights be based on dignity? Well, what is dignity anyway? Uh, how do we come up with a coherent account of dignity? I sort of really just kept it to, let's say the dead have human rights. What would that mean for the actual agencies and people who are responsible for according them those rights or not. Um, And it was very informative for me to look back over everything I'd read from the field of international forensic investigation, all the conversations I'd had, all the institutional rhetoric that was around me at PHR, uh, sorry, at Physicians for Human Rights, and realize, gosh, for people who identify first and foremost as human rights activists, and who've oriented so much of their work towards um, attention to dead bodies, and often attention to dead bodies in conditions that almost nobody else would be willing to mm. work in, they don't talk about human rights as the dead. Mm. And why? Um, and so that, that whole chapter and section of the book really become um, a meditation on if, if, you, if you went around proclaiming that the dead had universal human human rights to things like, you know, proper burial place. Um, what would that mean? Uh, how would it be translated into practice? And in an acknowledgement, um, I guess maybe you could say it took me a lot longer to get here than Clyde Snow. <laughs> but in acknowledgement that um, it goes down a road to a place that's. Um, where all you could all you would be able to perceive really is, the, is failure and where there would be very few ways to talk about what forensic investigation successfully does. because there are bodies that are lost forever because there are conditions in which not every grave can be located. because there's no way to um, there's no way to work out unfortunately or you know maybe sometimes yeah, I guess unfortunately, there's no way outside of the realities of geopolitics and the realities of resource constraints to work out where there are going to be exhumations, how far back in time they'll go or what countries they'll go to. It just didn't, it seemed like a, it seems like it's a way of speaking that doesn't help you work out the practice that it would be applied to. Mm-hmm. And that's why of course I eventually turned to, um, you know, if we can't talk about rights, but we want to focus on some of the things that can actually really be accomplished um, in these exhumations and that don't, don't have enough descriptive language attached to them, um, then we need to start talking about care of the dead more. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you used that word, um, and in fact, the last chapter is talks about what it means to care and a care perspective, um, and and I want to point out to. To the listeners, this this chap all of the the book, but this chapter in particular is kind of thoughtful and subtle, and you really need to go read it yourself. But but can you maybe summarize what what you mean by a care perspective and, and how this challenges practitioners of forensic investigation and how it might affirm them?
1: Um, sure, and um, it certainly didn't. I should be the first to say, uh, you know, in in humility that. Um, I wasn't the sense that there are things that matter to family members, um, or maybe even can be seen to matter to the dead, but that aren't captured in the official, um, in the in, in in the most common ways of thinking about and reporting on forensic investigations. You know that idea doesn't emerge just from the top of my head; it emerges from. Um, some uh, painful and often very moving reflections by practitioners themselves, or by people who have been close to survivor communities. So, um, in in that chapter on care, I do a lot of, I guess, talking back and forth with the forensic anthropologist Clea Koff, um, mm-hmm. who worked in Rwanda in the former Yugoslavia in the '90s, um, and who wrote this memoir, "The Bone Woman." Um, in which, as she says herself, she's frequently sort of, um, trying to navigate, uh, a very scientific and professionalized vocabulary that tends to count things like, how many graves did we visit? How many bodies were identified? Um, uh, you know, how many, how many prosecutions, how many expert witnesses were you able to send to the Hague or whatever? Um, uh, all of which, by the way, you know, the fact that I argue for focusing on other aspects of these projects as well does not mean, I mean, all of which are hugely important mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. outcomes of forensic investigation. Um, but, you know, she she and some others have tried to parcel out things like, well, what about the family um, who actually can't... Uh, once, the remains, once they find that the remains are skeletalized, um, they, they feel almost repulsed by them. Or there's um, the distance between those bones and the person they knew um, doesn't seem to activate the kinds of grieving, um, closure, et cetera that, that you know might be sought. Uh, but then you know they're handed the shirt that was found in the grave that the person was wearing, or they find um, the keys or the, you know, the, the necklace. um, And that object speaks to them in a way that the bones can't. Mm -hmm. So that's one of a number of places where um, the emphasis of, uh, on information, accountability, and identification, which is how one article, you know, from the field sort of frames the three outcomes of, uh, of forensic investigation, where there's something else there, right, that's not exactly a piece of information that doesn't directly lead to trials or accountability. Um, and I guess it's acknowledgement, but not in the traditional ways uh, that forensic investigations have been framed as acknowledgement, which is usually about the historical record and, Made this happened here, and here were the victims. Um, so that's the, the care chapter. Is just a um, it's the best I could do at taking the question. I think I think Michael Barnett, the international relations scholar, has said it best. The, taking the question of what falls outside the model, so mm. every field, uh, you know, whether it's uh, higher ed, which you and I work in, every day. <laughs> Or, you know, or forensic investigation, you know, develops some model of what its outcomes are and how they should be measured. Um, And the care chapter for me is what's falling outside the model. It's the most I can say about it. So we're nearing the end of our time.
0: Um, But a couple of quick questions to kind of conclude. And and one is... um, is there? There seems to be a renewed, or maybe a new, emphasis on on this field, on on forensic investigation. In fact, looking around on Amazon, and new book that should be published this month, the called or, or invokes the term the forensic turn. Is there some kind of forensic turn? Do you see this subject suddenly becoming more visible or more important somehow?
1: Hmm. I'm thinking because um I I think there are very dynamic and important changes in the field. Um, you know, I think inarguably it has gone from when you look at Argentina, uh it was a completely independently organized, transnationally networked shoespring effort. Mm-hmm. Um uh, that had to be kind of invented itself, and it's it's amazing how quickly uh, you know. In turn, when you look at the um, history of sort of types of human rights activism and things like that, it's amazing how quickly um, forensic investigation of and, and uh, the use of science in the search for the missing has become an institutionalized part of the. Um, of the response to atrocity and also humanitarian response. And I also think, um, and there are other scholars who focus on this more than I do, but the, um, the application of DNA technology, uh, has been tremendously transformative in the field, um, in many ways that are, you know, incredibly powerful and laudable and in other ways that people worry, worry about, um, whether it has to do with how do you communicate such a highly technical, um, process to family members who, um, you know, may be very precarious family members who, who may not have access to the kinds of, um, uh, expertise or scientific knowledge that's being communicated to them. Um, you know, how that's changing what, what, what used to often be thought of or hoped for as a scene of sort of collaboration around a grave site or a body to a highly technicalized process in which the, um, the distance between expert and mourner can be much greater. Um, and for anybody interested in this particular issue, um, Sarah Wagner's book, To Know Where He Lies About the Identification of the Dead um, in Bosnia, is, is a beautiful one. Hmm. Um, but so I, I think that, I, I think that, um, you can absolutely say it's become a more institutionalized field. I think it's a field, and that of course brings with it, um, really complicated politics and resource questions, um, uh, questions about the entrance of for-profit DNA labs into the, Mm. into the world of forensic investigation. And I think that you can say that it changes technologically. I'm not, um... I guess I'm just not a macro-enough cultural analyst or theorist um, that I tend to think of the anything-turn. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, a lot of people are watching CSI. Yes, this is an incredibly, for- mm-hmm. incredibly important uh, area of human rights work. Um, I, I guess I personally don't feel the need to talk about a broad scale forensic turn of of postmodernity or whatever in order to argue for the importance of what I'm studying yeah. writing about. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm gonna take a pass on that. <laughs> no,
0: that's fine. Although I'm I'm struck and you reference CSI, and I wonder, I mean CSI, the varieties of CSI. There's bones, there's seems this does seem to all of a sudden have become something of a wave in popular culture. Does that raise Does that make it problematic for people in the field who recognize that the challenges, both scientific and ethical, of actual field work, I I assume, um, are much more significant than than they're represented in in TV, and yet the audience for their work, or at least one audience for their work, is kind of raised on watching TV?
1: It certainly presents a practical problem in terms of the understanding of um of dna analysis um so forensic scientists talk about and have published widely on the so-called csi effect um which uh you know has to do with the fact that um so many episodes of these shows are sort of the key moments is when some you know hair or something is found and it's run through uh you know uh run through a scanner, and then you know the mystery is solved um, yeah. so there are cases where dna uh, it you know absolutely and and I write about a case Chile you know where where because of the changes in DNA technology um much more reliable answers um, as to the identification of the dead are available now than were. I don't, nobody denies the power, but um, you know, there's all kinds of things just from basic, uh, you know, site maintenance, like making sure that the, the crime scene, the grave site, et cetera, um, are well guarded that they're, um if, if there's excavation to be done and, that it's done carefully. I guess what I'm trying to say is the work is still, um, often very, very physical and very human. Um, and so to the extent that people are getting the impression that it's all, you know, these detectives in cool blazers, you know, running back to the lab to run run things through scanners, um, that gives a misimpression, and I think more. What's more worrisome for people who work in the human rights humanitarian fields is that that understanding also can filter down to survivor communities mm-hmm. who may think whether or not they're getting a DNA identification or um, what kind of DNA analysis is being used or whatever is the um, is the only measure of whether. Mm-hmm the identification is reliable, or whether their bodies are being seen to matter as much as the body somewhere else where DNA was used more, um, and and that, I think,
0: that can be hard. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, and thanks so much for, for your generosity and your willingness to be on. I just have a couple concluding questions, and, and one... I always ask guests to suggest a book or a movie or something else, something that they are, that made an impression on them, whether it's something new or whether it's um, older. What should I or our listeners, what should we read or watch or maybe do this weekend that that, that you found meaningful?
1: So I'm going to recommend a book um, that's actually by a, uh, Former high school classmate of mine um, huh. that, v- in one way, very much intersects with my own because care of dead bodies becomes, as the book goes on, um, an increasing preoccupation, um, but that, in all other respects, is very different from mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, my old friend and now recently connected new friend, uh, new old friend, Madeline Miller, wrote. A novel called The Song of Achilles, uh, which is her retelling of the, of the Iliad um, from the viewpoint of Patroclus, uh, Achilles' companion. Um, and it is a profound, beautiful um, book. I, I can't say it would ever occur to me to take on the task of retelling one of the world's mm. stories. Um, I would be so daunted. But um she's a former Latin and Greek teacher. She knows her classics incredibly well, and yet she brought um a whole new um set of um a just very a whole new, very humane element to a story that can feel very distant to us, you know, when you read home. Huh. Um and it's beautiful and like I said, um you know, for, I won't ruin it for those who don't remember the story that takes, that transpires in the Iliad. But um, there's some, uh, there's some issues around what's owed to the dead um, in the end, and she actually really she adds even stuff that wasn't in the Iliad that um, explores that idea even more. And it's just a beautiful book that, on a sentence to, sentence to sentence level, you know, is lyrical. It pays tribute to Homer not only in its story but in its fine attention to language, and it's heartbreaking and a great reading.
0: Well, you and I were talking about how many papers we, or I now and you later will be grading, but I will hope to find a time this weekend or next weekend when I can put the papers aside and, and read that. It sounds great. And so this book is published in 2015. The logical next question to academics
1: then is, um, what's next? Um, so in the short term, there are some questions that I guess were left um, dangling for me even after I wrote the book that are that are related to forensic investigation um, that I'm, I'm now wanting to research and, and answer better. And so particularly, you know, I mentioned um, looking at care as something that falls outside the model, but I don't think I got the time that I wanted to really look at what the model is or how um, – this sort of this field that's made up of many different organizations and experts, some of them, you know, grassroots human rights groups, some of them associated with international institutions, Um, how they report, um, on the impact of their work, what they identify as success, what they identify as failure to the, to what extent there are shared standards emerging, um, and to what extent they sometimes speak in different languages. So basically, I'm interested in um, the the measurement of the measurement of impact. Uh, hmm. um, and th- this question is troubling for any area of, of humanitarianism and human rights. And of course, uh, as professors, we also know about sort of all the debates over assessment and how you how much you you can measure whether students are learning. Um, so I want to look at the politics of the measurement by looking at primary source material, especially um, in terms of the reports of organizations that conduct forensic investigations. Um, In the broader sense, I I will honestly say I'm in a period of, um, I guess what I'll call intellectual play. (laughs) I have a lot of interests that are sort of simmering on in different on different stoves or whatever um mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not sure which one is going to become the thing that feels like it has another book or another really sustained project but the wonderful thing um about um coming to haverford is that I, i'm in a context now where the umbrella of teaching under peace justice and human rights um really has room for everything that i'm interested in mm-hmm. and so i'm able to use my teaching um to explore along with, you know, some really wonderful students, uh, to explore the different things that have called my attention, um, and figure out, you know, what there still is to say about them.
0: Well, whatever you choose to focus on next, um, I hope that when you're done, you'll come back on the show and talk about it. And
1: so I want to say thanks again for being with us. Kelly, thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun and your questions have been great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Take care.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Adam Rosenblatt about his new book, Digging for the Disappeared, Forensic Science After Atrocity. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll talk with another author from the field of genocide studies. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great one.